and welcome to Challenges That Change Us, the podcast where we talk to our guests about how their challenges have impacted them today and how they overcame them. Whether you are someone that feels like you are thriving right now, trudging through the mud or somewhere in between, this podcast is designed to give you practical advice, profound insight into your own experience and inspire you to embrace your life. My name is Ali Flynn, the co-founder and CEO of Tri Altitude Performance, and I will be your host. It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Hi, everyone. Welcome back for another week of Challenges That Change Us. I am so happy to have you on here with us for this very special interview. I hope you've set some time aside because once you hit play on this, I doubt you'll be turning it off. Today, I want to introduce you to Brenda Dembitson, a chemical engineer and a woman I will never forget. With over 15 years' experience in the mining and manufacturing industry, she is the best-selling author of The FIFO Wives' Tale and a YouTube series called The Chronicles of a Female Engineer, which demystifies what an engineer does, plus how to get ahead in a traditional and male-dominated field. She provides speaking, mentoring, coaching services to driven professionals so they can gain clarity on their unique strengths and skills and the confidence to leverage these for a fulfilling career and a happy life. As you know, I normally try and give you a rundown on the structure of the interview and what to expect. I'm changing it up a little bit today. Brenda's story is truly incredible and I just don't want to give it away before you listen. So there is a few things to note, however. Firstly, as you hear her story, you might wonder about some aspects of the story and notice that I don't ask that next question. This has been done intentionally to keep Brenda and the people in her story safe. Also, I want to do a trigger warning for drugs and being wrongly accused. So if this is not the right episode for you today, I invite you to jump back and listen to Erica's episode last week as there were heaps of great strategies on dealing with anxiety and panic attacks. Today is a story of how your past does not need to define your future. And if you want to talk to someone or you feel like something is triggered in any shape or form, please reach out to someone you trust or Lifeline on one three double one one four. They also have a text service, 0477 All right, and now for the episode. So Brenda, I'd love to welcome you onto our podcast, Challenges That Change Us. Thank you so much for taking the time today to come on. Hello, Ali. Thanks for having me. I love to start each podcast with a question and it's going to be around what animal best describes you and why? So I think the animal that best describes me is a peacock. So a peacock has lots of beautiful colours and I find that whenever I'm in different friendship groups or in different scenarios, different parts of me come out. So, And I'm a bubbly person. So I think the brightness of the colors of a peacock really resemble my <laughs> my essence, I suppose. And people can't see you've got this fabulous purple jacket on and tan skin <laughs> and just like, you know, just even seeing you right now, you're very colorful. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I love when we get a new animal on the episode. Every time I ask this question, I'm always like, is it going to be one we've already had? And I don't think we've had a peacock yet. Is this the first? Yes. Oh, fantastic. This is the first. <laughs> And Brenda, you, you grew up over in Africa. You spent your first sort of couple of decades over there? Yes. So I 
was born in Zimbabwe, so that's just out of the south of Africa, next to South Africa, for those who know where that is. And yes, so I was born in Zimbabwe, and I was there till essentially my primary school finished. I went to boarding school since I was eight years old. So when I moved to Australia for university, I moved by myself. (laughs) And so that was a big feat in and of itself. But in some ways, it just felt like I was on another boarding school escapade. Like I was in a different boarding school that was just a little bit further away. Yeah. A bit longer to see my parents, but um, yes. How far was your boarding school from home in Africa? So when I went to boarding school in primary, it was about an hour and a half away from home, drive. And then in high school, four hours away. What are some of your fond memories of growing up? I think the fond memories that I have of growing up were just like the fruit trees that we had in the back of our house and being able to just go at the back and eat mandarins, mangoes, guavas, pawpaws, so much fresh fruit is actually a big memory. And laughter. There was so much laughter and joy, which I really appreciate now. Looking back, as kids, we just loved life. And I think as an adult, you start (laughs) not appreciating these things that are just everyday awesome moments right and yeah and is that a big difference between the cultures like when you came over to Australia are the kids in Africa like is that a really common theme that runs through because every time you I always think about the photos and the videos that I see they're always laughing right dancing laughing playing and just seem to have so much joy in their world even though around them in their environment there might be a lot going on that's 100% right. I feel like there is an innocence and a joy which is unattached, whereas I suppose in first world countries, you've got lots more available and on hand. You know, I think maybe now we're living in a different age, but digitally, you know, TV wasn't very exciting for me as a kid. You know, I just mm. loved being outside playing and in the dirt. <laughs> and I think kids these days have got lots of things to keep them occupied. There's lots of YouTube and lots of digital things that can make them unimpressed, I guess, with the day-to-day yes. <laughs> options that are available. So yeah. I think culturally there is some differences there. And what do you miss? What do you miss from being over there? Mainly my parents because they're still over there. So I miss them. I miss the food. So there's a lot of snacks that are local to Zimbabwe, like biltong. I've never heard of that. What is that? (laughs) It's like jerky, but jerky's got sugar. So it's like dried meat and yeah. essentially you dry it, you put some spices on it. It's just delicious. And just this, this the home cooking. Yeah. A lot of the Zimbabwean food is uh, stews and sadza, which is like a very hard mashed potato made of corn. And it would have been hard these last couple of years because you wouldn't have been able to get back. Like, you know, I can imagine that would have put a big divide and a big gap, empty kind of vast space. Yeah, and what sort of made that worse was we were meant to have a big family reunion. End of March, I think it was actually, 2020, in Florida, we had booked this beautiful trip over there and we just couldn't go because the world started to shut down early March. And we haven't seen our family since. (laughs) So we're yet to sort of reschedule that uh, catch up and for them to see – the kids, like I've had another baby since my parents were last around and the other one's obviously growing. So it's just those things that you miss out on. Well, I'm going to say to you when you get off this interview, I want you to send a message to someone to get the ball rolling on that family catch up because, <laughs> you know, we forget and time passes, you know, if we don't start that and take action, we know it's something we want to do. But yeah, I'm encouraging you to do that straight after this phone call. Thank you. Thank you. Permission slip granted, I see. <laughs> 
<laughs> and Brenda, we, I, I'm really interested to chat to you today around some of the challenges that you've faced. One of our beautiful friends, MJ, put us in touch. She'd been listening to my podcast and she said, Oh, you need to meet this woman. Like I'm going to link you two up. And, you know, that's when I reached out and, and I haven't heard all of the story. So I'm really, really looking forward to hearing it because there has been a massive challenge that you have faced that has kind of led you to where you are today. Yes, definitely. So do you want to take us back maybe to the beginning of that challenge? Yeah. So look, I'm a chemical engineer and part of the work I was doing is flying in and out of a mining site. So those familiar with remote work is essentially you go over there, you work at the mine site to at the remote location, and then you fly back to a city. So at the time, it was 2011, and at the time, I was flying in and out of Adelaide, South Australia, and doing like an eight days on, six days off roster. And I had a boyfriend at the time who was based in Sydney. So I'd fly back and, you know, meet up with him. And on this particular week or particular day, it was his birthday. And what I'd planned was this romantic escapade. So I had a, a romantic weekend planned, a nice sort of, it was a, I forget what they called it, honeymoon hang or something. It was something sort of that sounded luxurious and then go-karting, horse riding. It was on this little sort of a, um, retreat. And so we essentially were driving down to the location. And then my boyfriend at the time said, hey, look, I've got to stop and just pick up a package for a friend. And, you know, I was like, oh, it's inconvenient. Why would we have to do this now on the way to this getaway. Anyway, so we stopped at the post office and then he sort of started looking around and he's like, oh, I don't have my ID. Can you go and get this package for me? So I was like, oh, okay. So I went into the post office and I requested the package. And then the ladies were sort of, you know, they sort of looked at the details and they're like, oh, let's go look for the package. And they went, you know, in the back and started to look around for the package. And it seemed to be taking a, a fair while. And they're like, hey, look, we can't find this package right now. Are you okay to go get a coffee? And I said, yeah, yeah, no worries. So I went over to Gloria Jeans and I got a white hot chocolate, which was my favorite at the time. I spent a bit of time, you know, maybe just five, 10 minutes. And then I came back in and the lady sort of ushered me forward. So then I came through and they're like, oh yeah, we found the package. And, you know, I was all smiles and just signing away. And then I took this box, it was a big box and I was sort of carrying it out. And as I walked outside, two strange things happened. So not only did my boyfriend not walk towards me to collect the package that I got, he sort of started veering in a different direction and two undercover police officers were now in front of me. So I was shocked. I was like, well, what are they doing here? Yeah. And they were like, excuse me, ma'am, you know, can you come with us? So, you know, walk towards, talk, walk towards their car with them. Did you know they were police officers at the time or was it just two men standing? No, at the time I didn't know. At the time I didn't know what they were doing. I think, I don't know if they flashed something or if, if it just seemed strange. Like, mm. Well, they just came to me and said, excuse mm. me, ma'am, come with us, please. And I was like, oh, what's, what's going on here? And then they put the, the box at the back of the, the car. It was an undercover car, like there's a Holden of some sort. And they said, um, we've got reason to believe that there's drugs in this package, so please come with us. And I was like, well, how can there be drugs? I, I mean, I don't know what's in this box. I've just picked it up and yeah. this must be a whole big mistake. So I followed them through to the police station and did all the things. Like I didn't call for, um, I didn't use my Fifth Amendment, so to speak. I didn't ask for the services of a lawyer because I didn't need one, right? <laughs> so I went in, told them what had happened, told them what was going on, explained. I think it took about an hour or an hour and a half, you know, they're coming in and out. And then they essentially came in and said, look, we've found cocaine hidden in this backpack. And I was just like, what backpack, what cocaine, right? Yeah. And then they were like, you know, unfortunately, you're going to have to face the judge tomorrow. So 
you know, you'll spend the night in our facilities tonight. And I was like, what? <laughs> so I essentially had to spend the night in a detention centre or police station detention centre while I awaited the judge to essentially make a ruling. What was your mind thinking? Were you just like, oh, this must be a mistake? Like, were you just like, whatever, someone's going to sort this out or? At that stage, I thought, okay, one more, one sleep, you know. Yeah. Tomorrow this will all be finalised. Like, this is just all one big mistake. Like, I don't know what's going on, but, you know, tomorrow the lawyer will sort it out and this will all just be, you know, Done a bad dream. dream essentially. Mm. But, you know, that night in the detention centre, like, you know, it's crazy things happening in there. There's people screaming and shouting and there's drunk and disorderly and there's, you don't know who's in that. Like, I was in a cell with someone next to me and she was having her own issues. She was talking to herself and muttering different things. And I was just like, oh my God, get me out of here. Yeah. And then the next day, I spoke to a legal aid lawyer, perhaps very briefly, like she sort of said, hey, look, Brenda, I'm the lawyer. I'm going to be looking after your case and I'll be doing all the talking. You know, and I was like, okay. And I, I didn't know what else to, to say. I just thought it was going to be a simple procedure. But then essentially when my name got called up and the judge read out the sheet, you know, he said three words or, you know, Brenda, bail denied. And I was just like, what? What? <laughs> I know, I could just imagine. I have not been through this, but I'm just sitting there thinking, oh, my God, are you just like jaw dropped? Like, what do you mean? Jaw dropped, silence. It was just like bail denied. And he oh just quickly God. moved on. Like he just said, bail denied off to the, you know, I don't even remember what the words were after that. He said something, something, something. He shuffled. And then it was like the next person was being called up. And I was there. Like I looked to the left, looked at, there was literally no lawyer, no one to talk to, like no one to like be like, excuse me, something like I need to. What just happened? <laughs> yeah. What just happened? Like, who, you know, there was no one. Oh my God. Nothing. And the next minute I knew I was getting back to the room or, you know, sequence of events, they, I was getting handcuffed and being put in the back of a, a paddy wagon, put in the back of a, a van and being taken to a maximum security female prison in Sydney, Australia. Oh, my God. What was your first, like, were you still just as in this must be a mistake or were you starting to get scared? I was still just like, what the heck? Like, yeah. this is real. Like, I'm going to a prison. Like, this is a maximum prison. Like, who's, who knows? There's murderers here. Yeah. There's, there's people who do bad things. And we don't know what happens in prisons, right? Like, this is one of the things that, you know, you know I'm probably going to ask you about today because you see everything on TV. You have no idea of what it's actually like. So, you're being taken to this place that you just have this perception of with this huge story that's just happened over the last sort of 48 hours. And look, to be fair, I've had to, like it was a decade ago now, and I've, I've probably repressed a lot of the, the yeah. memories, but watching Wentworth helps me to remember a few things, which is a show which, you know, for your listeners, a global, it's an Australian show for female-only prison, I believe, that's based yeah. in Melbourne. And essentially it was all the same process. So I had to get through when I went there. I was crying, I was bawling my eyes out. And the first thing you have to do is like get changed. Like they take off your your civilian clothes and they give you the gr the green garb. So there's a green t-shirt, a green pair of tracksuit pants, green socks, and I think some white tracksuit uh, tennis, you know, shoes. And I had to get test tested and, you know, cough and squat and do all the things. And I was just like, what the heck? What is this? And then I was placed in a, in a cell which had like this thin flat mattress, like barely a blanket, like a scratchy blanket. I'm so fussy, like soft and cuddly <laughs> things. Yeah. And I was just like, wow, like this, like that's what I've just felt like. This is just unreal. And yeah, even just thinking about it now, it's like, whew, this was just a big transition. And I was just like, am I safe here? Am I going to be okay? What's what's going to happen? But I'm also imagining that it's at some point you you realise that 
it is happening no matter what. It's like even though I didn't do X, nothing I can do right now is going to change my situation. Yeah. And it's really about coming to terms with it, right? Like, and it's similar with, 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 with everything in life, any challenge we've faced in life. It's like, oh, shoot, this is where I'm at right now. Mm. Like, this is it. Okay, let's let's face it and, like, look at it in the face, come to terms with it. And this was the thing. Like, I was just like, okay, Brenda, you're here now. Like, what are you going to do to survive? Like, how are you going to get through yeah. this? And I was just like, okay, look, I need to find, <laughs> not my people, but find some friendly yeah. people. Like, there's got to be people here who may be in a similar situation to me who don't yeah. belong here or they're waiting to get, you know, their matters sorted out so they can get out. Out of here and so it was really about trying to find groups of people that were normal people I suppose or people and that's the thing like sometimes I got to find that a lot of these people are normal or made bad decisions at some yeah. sort of time or had gone through what you yeah, went or through. Had gone through what I'd gone through yeah right, there exactly were people in there that didn't do what people have told them they've done and exactly yeah so that's exactly what I had to do I just had to talk to people share experiences like there's a few things in there like to be fair this was an Australian prison, and I was thanking God that I was not in a Zimbabwean prison because yeah. I had three meals a day. Mm. I had morning tea or afternoon tea where I had hot, you know, hot drinks, you know, and like in a Zimbabwean prison, like you'd be lucky to get that thin blanket that I was, you know, snuffing my, my, my face at or, you know, food that's fresh, you know. So I was just thanking God, really. And, you know, that's perspective right there because any other person in an Australian prison would feel like they've got nothing. But, you know, you're like, whoa, this is actually a good place compared to where I could yeah, be. I was, I was like, this could have been much worse. And there's yeah. people in there like saying, excuse me, like to the correctional officers, like, where's my tea? Where's my this? And I'm like, far out people in here, like actually calling the shots. Like, you know, yeah. this is like, so that was quite interesting to see. And how old were you when this happened? So how old was I? I think I was 27. Yeah. And how long were you in there? And I was in there for six weeks. So, look, I went oh in there thinking God. this is going to be just a three-dayer, four-dayer or something. So the, and, and the problem is this legal system takes forever. Mm. First of all, I had to actually get – luckily, I'm someone who's very quick with my numbers. So, I actually knew my brother's phone number. So, I was able to quickly add that to the call list and give him a call and, you know – he received that phone call saying, you know, you've received a collect call from the Silver Water Jail. Do you accept? And that's essentially a little tagline that happens every time someone's calling you from a prison, for those who know. And luckily he accepted. He probably must have thought, what the heck is this? You know, yeah. he probably could have hung up. And I had to say, hey, like, I'm in prison. Like, I need you to find me a lawyer. I need you to assist me and get bail. We need to get out of here, like, and sort this thing out. What was his reaction? He was shocked. Like, he was like, excuse me. Like, like he was like, this is a joke, right? Like yeah. it was just some sort of prank. And he was hurt. Like you can imagine and, and African families are very like what's the word? It's not really proud, but like it's there's a sense of oh, I don't even know what the word is. But it was just like I could just imagine how his heart sank, like hearing yeah. that. Like because we're all very like established people and yeah. my parents put a lot of effort into raising us and taking yeah. us to private schools and sending us overseas for studies. So, like, he would have – his heart would have dropped, like, having to explain to them, like, you know, Brenda's in jail. For cocaine. Like, <laughs> exactly. You know, like, like, she's out there for a drug, char yeah. a drug charge. Like, you yeah. know, we need to get her out. So, And I don't know if this is your experience, but often – because I used to work in the jails and everyone used to say, but no one believes me, even though this is – you know, like, it was like even though you could say exactly what happened for you, there was still a perception for some people that – well, she must have done it, you know. Did you find yeah, that? Yeah, because there's lots of people in there. Like there's lots of different characters. So people mm. get jaded. Some people actually wanted to come back in there heaps of times. Like there's mm. this lady. 
she was there for two weeks, I think it was, and um, she finally got let out. And this is like over Christmas. So, so I got in there. It was November 11, 2011. So it was a date that I remember for the rest of my life because it was Remembrance Day and the, the lawyers made a big point of it during the trial and everything. And um, she got in there and then she came back at Christmas time. Like she got in there, she was in there, I don't know how long she was in there before. And then she got out, but then she did something and came back in. And some people are in that cycle of being in there just because there's stability, just because there's a bit of a routine, just because it can be guaranteed three meals a day. And for some, it's safer than what the outside world is. You know, I worked with kids that did exactly what you're talking about. I remember one guy in particular got out that day and he said to me, I'm just going to go and (laughs) break into Big W because I need to get back in. It's too unsafe out here. And I was just like, it's hard to imagine. It's hard to imagine that someone's living in such an unsafe world that jail is actually the safest place for them, the most consistent place, the most known, the most, you know. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly it's sad. Yeah. It's really sad. So when you think about your time in there, how would you describe it? Harrowing? Like, look, I think I can see, you know, I can see how I went through different emotions. Like there's an emotional curve almost from being in there. Like, first of all, feelings of like humiliation, feelings of like embarrassment, feelings of like disappointment, feelings of shock, anger, frustration, all those sort of confusion, um, all these feelings at the front end. And then like scared Mm. anger, scared fear, like what's going to happen here? And then that acceptance that like, what am I going to do about it? How can I move forward in this? How can I, you know, this this trial will come or this lawyer will come, bail is coming. And that sort of anticipation of like, how can I make my time here manageable? How can I not, you know, dig myself into a hole? While I'm here, even though I'm in the, you know, in the hole, <laughs> it's like, how can I? What else can I do here? Like, what, you know? Yeah, how can, what else can I do? And one way that I found to essentially increase my spirits and lift me out of this depth of the darkness that I was in was to, to work. And for those people that are familiar with flying Qantas Airways, they've got these headsets. And, you know, every time you get on there, you rip open this plastic, you know, plastic container, plastic packet that's got a little compassion I used to have, I actually haven't been on a Qantas plane for a while now, but they used to have a compassion flyer, which had like, you know, sign here and donate to a child. And then it's got your earmuffs and you plug those in and you listen into it and you settle in for the rest of your, your plane journey. When I was in prison, one of my jobs was to get a whole bag that was full of those used headsets, debuff them, untangle them and put them into a fresh plastic bag, put a fresh compassion pamphlet sticker thing through it and then seal it. And I think each one of those bags was like 10 cents or something to, you know, so every every bag you, you filled was a 10 cent <laughs> wage. 10 cents is you got. I didn't realize you got paid in there at all, actually. Yeah, you could have a job in prison. There's yeah. different jobs that you can have. So that was one of the jobs that I was able to, to acquire. 10 cents. I know. 10 I'm cents. still just processing that. I was like two things at once here. I was like, you can get paid in prison, but You can 10 get a job cents? in prison. You can get paid. And it was very pittance. But, you know, at least I was spending my days being useful. At least I was yes. spending my days feeling like, oh, someone's going to wear these. Or one yes. day, you know, in the future when I put one of these pairs on, like I'll laugh at what, you know, not laugh, but, you know, hopefully I'll can laugh one day. And think, yeah. oh, my God, I once packed one of these. I know what happens at the back end yeah. of these, you know, these things and yeah I was able to feel useful I was able to feel of service I was able to feel like I was helping myself you know get snacks I think you get like some noodles or some chocolates or something with 
of the money that I got from that, you know, and obviously getting the visitors come in to visit me while I was over there, all of these things just let me see those six weeks through. Yeah, and give you hope. That's what I'm hearing as well. It was like just holding on to, you know, the time that it's a period of time in your life and that it will end. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Definitely that feeling of hope that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Because you could get swallowed up by anger and fear. I'd imagine that there are two emotions that could swallow you very quickly, especially when you've been wrongly accused, like just how you manage to not be furious and rage at the injustice. And I think part of that is the emotional intelligence. Like a lot of people talk to me about, oh, pretty, you're so calm under pressure, this and that. But I think in that moment I knew, like I, ha- I had no access to it. Like I couldn't even like be there and say, excuse me, like what? Like we were separated immediately in that car park. So I had no idea what was going on with him in the background. I had no idea what was happening at all, right? And so to me it was almost like, well, I can either hold all this anger within me but it's just killing me. Like, and I know a lot of people talk about that and it's hard to get into that when you're in the situation. But like some part of me just sort of, sort of felt like I need to go through this journey. I need to step through the motions with this lawyer. And then like, it was, just, it was tough. Like the lawyers are expensive. Mm. Trials are expensive. Like this was a six figure clear up. Like it's, this is a mistake that costs six figures to clear up. And looking back, like it's sort of like, what was this lesson trying to teach me? And that I, was I'm, what I was going to ask you. I was going to be like, what when you look back and reflect, what are the lessons that you kind of take away from that? Yeah, lots of lessons. And I think there's lots of things that I was able to look at and be grateful for, right? So gratitude is a big one. Like yeah. how grateful can you be of the life that you have and the small things that you have? And even when you're in the depth of darkness, what light can you see around you? So being able to see joy in the small moments. Also just, I think what I really had, like, because before this relationship was another bad relationship. <laughs> and I think what I really am thankful for is like now when I look at my husband, like he is a, a, an angel compared to mm. the relationships that I was in. And so I thank the Lord that I had that relationship crumble in that way. Like, yes, it was very dramatic, but it meant that I avoided a whole lifetime of pain, right? A whole lifetime of something else that could have gone worse. One thing was that when I called my work and informed them that, hey, I'm not coming back, like they're probably thinking, okay, Brenda, you're meant to be coming back for your sixth year from your – You called them from jail? From your roster off. I had to call them. I had to call my boss. (gasps) Sorry, guys. I'll be back in six weeks. I'm just going (laughs) to – I don't know when I'll be back, but um, just know that I'm caught up in this issue. Yeah, so I essentially had to tell them, like, look, oh my I'm God. currently caught up in a legal battle and I'm trying to clear my name. So when I'm in a position to give you more information than that, I will. Right? And they were just like, look, Brenda, you're still welcome. Oh. This is not work-related. This is not This is not anything that, you know, that's impacting your work or, you know. So they said, you're still welcome. And I was just like, wow. What a response. It was such an empathetic response. And for me, what that made me want more so was for women to just be in a position to be financially independent. Like the importance of me having that job while I was trying to, you know, to fund the the coming um, bills that were coming my way. But just to be able to be in a position where you can start afresh, right, where you can start from zero if you need to. Like I know a lot of women who are in domestic violence situations and if they are financially empowered, they've got options there that if they don't have them that, you know, they don't consider. So that was another thing that like, look, if you're gainfully employed in an employment, that's, that's awesome. Like STEM and I'm an engineer. So engineering is a great, (laughs) it's a great 
career. When you say STEM, what I've seen that a lot, but what does STEM actually mean oh, yes. for the audience? So STEM stands for science, technology, engineering, and maths. Oh, that's and- not what I expected you to say. <laughs> I was like, I've seen it so many times on your stuff, and I'm like, what is STEM? <laughs> Yeah, so women in STEM is a big buzzword thing right now because a lot of these industries are male-dominated. Yes. Um, historically, engineering, for example, still has, and not even historically today, in Australia, 12% of engineers are female. So that's literally in a room full of 100 people, only 12 of those will be women. So it's still a big, you know, a big drive for more women to come into this industry simply because we've got ways that we see things differently. We've got ways that we can improve things. We've got ways, I mean, we're 50% of the world, right? Like, so things, simple things like reaching up to the top cupboard in your kitchen or having something that's poorly designed. Like we need women there to, to, to say, hey, have we thought about this differently? Or, hey, have you looked at this? You know, so I'm really passionate. And, and one thing that's birthed out of that crazy experience. <laughs> that experience. <laughs> need some words there? Is, yeah. I'm like, what was that? Um, all, how um, can I? <laughs> the out of body. Uh, that moment in my life that I was locked up for something the, I didn't do. That moment you know. that changed it all. <laughs> yeah. And I should clarify that, yeah, I was found not guilty. And it is, it is, there's nothing on my records around this matter and everything. It doesn't take away. I guess the damage or the scarring does it. It's like I can hear and I know we're going to get into it, what's come of it, you know, what's grown out of this adversity, but it doesn't, there's still that scar of what happened, how you were treated, mistreated, what you experienced, living in that life-threatening situation, trying to work your way out, how do I survive, like, there's a lot. Yeah. And there's no handbook, you know, for an experience like that. And even if there was, I don't know if it would be in the library, in the prison. <laughs> how, to, how, to, how to handle <laughs> uh, prison 101 or whatever it is. Yeah. So, but, yeah, so one of the experiences that, that that birth was for me to really want to be in a position to empower more women to, like, not only embrace their differences as their, their strengths, but, like, to realize that your past doesn't determine your future. Things can happen to us, you know, mistakes can be made, failures can happen, but at every moment, like, we have a choice about what we make that experience mean. Mm. And, you know, your perspective, oh, I heard a fantastic quote the other day, your perspective can either be your prison or it can be your your pleasure, I think it was. I forget what the, the other P was. <laughs> Do you know, I think I read that the other day and wrote it down somewhere. So if I get it, I'll pop it in the Facebook group for our listeners yes. because I think I I actually wrote it down. Fantastic. Yeah, a very similar one because it's so true. It's so true. Two people can go through a same experience and one person will say this was, you know, the worst thing ever and someone can say this, this is the best thing ever and it's all about how you – how you look at it, what lessons have you learned from it and what have you taken away, what have you learned from it and how can you move forward. And how do you integrate it into your world? Like how do you make sense of it for you and your story and your life and how you want to move forward? And I think what you said, there's kind of those two parts. There's that understanding and that integration but then there's also, well, what am I going to do now? (laughs) Like can't change it, so what now? Exactly. And um, part of that for my what now was really around – because I was so proud of my employer's response and my journey in general as an engineer, like one of the things I've been doing is flying the ship, you know, as an advocate for women in STEM, women in engineering. And I've got this YouTube channel that I started called Chronicles of a Female Engineer. 
which is really about debunking and demystifying this whole industry because people still say, what do the engineers do? Like, do they just build cars and I wrote that down boys? when you started. I wrote down, I must ask her what chemical engineering is and then we moved on too quickly. But, yes, because yes, that, was, okay. that was my very first question when you started talking was what is that? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, and- so chemical engineers essentially – we improve processes, we create products, we improve processes. Anything that you see around you in our day-to-day lives is essentially as a chemical engineer in the background. So lighting, power, power generation, we can turn dirt into gold. So through the processing of met dirt. Literally? <laughs> literally. Literally, we take dirt that's come out from underground, it gets put on a conveyor, so there's a little bit of mechanics involved, and then we add like chemicals to it. We put it to a high pressure, put it to a high temperature, and then out of the multiple tanks and things, that's a very simplified way, comes gold, silver, titanium, all these things that we put in our computers that then become, you know, software, the copper wires that get used to create electricity. More exciting people make alcohol and liquids or soft drinks and, you know, CO2 is not just something that we breathe out, it's something that's used in the medical industry to help us with our surgeries and to, you know, knock us out when we (laughs) get our teeth out. So all that stuff, like engineers are literally in the fabric of our day-to-day lives, but people just don't know. Yeah. There isn't that engagement, there isn't that, you know, connection piece and a lot of this probably because we don't have enough things in the media, like the mainstream media about it. There's no cool movies or cool TV shows about it. So one of my passions eventually was to get a show out there that highlights all the cool things that engineers yeah. do. And um, I can introduce you to the podcast world. Ooh. That might be a way. <laughs> you should, yeah, definitely get the stories out of yeah. cool things that engineers do. A lot of people know about space engineers just because they get to go to NASA and go up to space and to Mars and things, but there's so much stuff that engineers can do. And so you were an engineer before this happened and then afterwards you went back into the same role and the same career. Did you stay there or has it kind of grown into something else? So I've stayed within my industry. So I was in mining at that time. I moved across into manufacturing. I did a few more different roles, climbed the ladder. And then I've also started a career coaching business that's on the side of that. And it's, I probably don't really like to call it career coaching. It's more empowerment coaching yeah. with the focus for career women or career professionals. And simply because I feel like one of the key struggles that women have in the industry is about how do we showcase our skills? How do we showcase Mm. our strengths? Why are we always constantly trying to prove ourselves? Why do we constantly have to be confident and be aggressive and do things manly ways? How can we not just be ourselves and get things done? And so my elements is really about how can I empower women to be more of who they already are? Like how do they find out the label that's on the outside, you know, while they're in the job? Because it's often hard to know your skills and your strengths until someone says, actually, you're perfect at this. You're amazing at this. Like you had to do this and this and this to get through that. And like, oh, yeah, I did. And it's just about getting women to own their unique strengths and to use that to secure promotions, to get pay rises, to be in a career that maybe they love and enjoy Mm. because often people are in the wrong career sometimes as well. And there's an element of, you know, we compare so much to everyone around us. Like we need to be doing it that way or we should be this or why can't we do that? And it's like the minute you can really see you for you, it's untapped potential. When you stop comparing yourself to the person next to you or the person across the street. You're so right. And a lot of that is due to the digital world we live in now. Like it's so easy to swipe along and (laughs) to look at people's dream lives and, you know, amazing lives and want to be like them. But oftentimes what suits another person is not going to be your 
<laughs> the way you're meant to do it, the way you're designed. And we're all unique, right? How amazing is it that we've all got mm. a unique purpose on this world? And the more we try to copy others, like you're, you're only dimming down the real reason that you are on this earth. So, Hey, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you are and you'd like to learn more or engage further with our podcast community, you can do this in our Facebook group. Just search for Challenges That Change Us on Facebook or look in the link in our show notes. In this group, we'll be sharing extra content and giving further background to our episodes. So I hope to see you there. But for now, let's get back to the episode. And I imagine a lot of your work is also would be around the imposter syndrome. Do you have like, you know, for anyone listening, like that feels like they kind of know what their passion is and they feel really aligned with where they're going, but they still have that little voice inside their head or that fear or that core belief that's holding them back from actually stepping over the line because they think, who am I? Who am I to do this? Yes. And I love my favorite answer to someone asking me that question is, who are you to not? Right. And it's about realizing that all of us experience imposter syndrome. Barack Obama, Michelle Obama, they're my favorites. Presidents, CEOs, your manager, whoever it is, you know, your peer, your business bestie, they all experience imposter syndrome at one point in time. The only difference perhaps with what you can see them doing now is that they've they've acknowledged it and they've told it to take a back seat. Right? <laughs> they said, thank you. I acknowledge you. I know that you're here. I know that you like to do this every time we're about to, you know, jump into something new, something big, or, you know, they sort of talk to it and reframe it and think about what if this works? Mm. What if this is so amazing? What if I help 100 people? What if I get that job and open up opportunities for my family? And what if we get to travel all next year? What if I can help my family? Like They look at what if this works instead of what if this doesn't work or what if I fail, right? And so a simple reframe that I love to give my clients is to think about the positive, what's going to happen well when you do this. And often another one that my clients can struggle with is confidence, right? Mm. I don't feel confident. I don't know how to be confident like her. And confidence comes through doing. Like confidence comes through action. Just take that first step. Like we don't have to take the 20. Take that first step in the direction of your goal. And repeated work, repeated actions will help you to become confident. And everything's hard until it becomes easy. You know, learning to ride a bike was hard. Like how many times did we scrape our knees? Or if you're trying to teach a toddler how to ride a bike at the moment, like, you know, it was really, really challenging to get the mechanics of the feet turning and the balance and the looking up and the holding onto the handlebars and the distraction until it became natural and easy. And and I think a lot of what we do in the world is very similar to that. You know, it's not until we do it enough times that it becomes our everyday that we're like, oh, I can do this with confidence now. Yes, yes, you're so right. One of the titles in, our, in my program that I do, it's called Mastering the Art of Repetition because right now in this world that we're in, like we love to have everything ready really quickly. Like we've got the microwave, we've got the express mode, we've got so much information at our fingertips that we expect it to just happen overnight or to happen quickly in a week. But really it is those small steps. It is that putting in the hours and refining the skill that will then see you get to that place that you want to get to the yeah. top of the mountain. And the hard work you do right now is actually what's going to pay off later. You know, sometimes we think we want to see everything right now for what we're doing, but often you're doing like the underground stuff when you think about a tree. It's like you're growing the roots before the tree kind of grows. 
Yeah, and roots. Yeah, <laughs> I love all this stuff. I, I'm very much into personal development. And when I look at roots and the ways that a tree grows and seeds, like when seeds are formed, like you put them underground, you put them in this dirt, you put them in this lonely place. And the first thing that they have to do is they have to crack, they have to break away. And then the roots are the things that grow first, right, underneath before you see a shoot above ground. Mm. And so really it is about even though it doesn't look like anything's working, even though it doesn't look like anything's happening, things are being formed under the ground, under the surface. And the people that you're seeing blooming have spent time in the secret place or time out of <laughs> the visual. Yeah, and if you think about that exact analogy, it's pretty dark and lonely down there, right? Like you can spend some pretty dark days as a seed by yourself with nothing else around, not knowing if the sun's ever going to hit your skin before yes. you blossom out. 100%. I could talk about this all day too. I do have some <laughs> questions for you though. Coming back to your story, I do have some questions. I am curious as to how you integrated back into society because I still do a lot of work in this space and that was one of the really hard, I guess, chapters for someone is when they're leaving jail and they're trying to integrate back into society, whether it's people's reactions to them, whether it's who am I now, whether it's what do I do now. I know we're kind of dropping you back into 10 years ago, but when you think about that transition and coming back out, like, first of all, we might just talk a little bit around what were some of those challenges that you faced and then what were the things that helped get you through that? Because that's a scenario we're talking about, which is huge, but these strategies transfer across to everything that we do. Yeah, definitely. So when I look back at what was happening immediately after I left, I was on a strict bail conditions. So what that meant was I was essentially locked into the little town that I live, you know, that I was working in. So I had to stop that fly and fly out that I was mm. doing. I had to become a residential based employee essentially. And so what that meant was that I couldn't really go for a lot of the things that maybe people were inviting me to, like they'd be like, oh, let's go to, you know, let's go to Melbourne for the weekend or let's do this. I was like, oh, you know, I had to make up stories essentially. Like I had to like, you know, quickly deflect a whole lot of times because I didn't want to open up about this thing. I was like, I don't want to talk about this. Like mm. I just want to pretend like it didn't happen. And because it was over that Christmas period, like it just people didn't realize people go away for breaks and people, you know, do their own thing and go away, f you know, for holidays. So no one really asked me too many questions like, oh, Brenda, where were you? Or, or you know, those sort of things. So I was just in jail. Just did a little stint. <laughs> just had a quick, uh, a quick hiatus, you know, a quick fly out. And I, you know, so I was just really trying to avoid anything that would cause me to try and talk about the situation at all. Because you were worried about their reaction or because you were processing it yourself? Yeah, I feel, still felt a big stigma about it. I was still processing it. Like I was like, what do I tell people? Like, will they even believe me? And mm. also because my lawyer at the time was just like, you know, you're under strict rules to not discuss this, you know, this event with anyone because, you know, they might be called as as witnesses or as, you know, so your references at some point. So there was all this hush hush and I didn't know anything about what, what I was meant to do or what, what's not to do. And so a lot of it was just keeping my cards close to my chest, quite a lot of it, and really diving my head deep into work. Like I was just like, this is the only thing that I've got going for me right now. And, you know, I need to be a high performer. I need to, you know, bury myself into this essentially so I don't have to think about what's boiling on underneath. And it was a lot of uncertainty because, you know, law dates, like the legal system is in no rush for anyone, you know, they mm. they set things out, you know, oh yeah, so I came out in June, in January, I think, and my thing was like in April or May, so there's like five months of like uncertainty, five months of, you know, daily signing into a cop shop, you know, going in there to say, hey, I'm still here, you know, as per the bail conditions, and then frequent trips to Sydney to talk to a lawyer, so 
a lot of that was just trying to work through in silence and burying myself in some activities that I knew would keep me occupied. And then also just the friend, the close-knit friends that I was able to have around me to just keep me focused on stuff. So I could still go out for social netball and soccer and mm. things to keep myself active and any local you know, barbecues or things I could go to. So I still try to just keep a normal life in that aspect. There's a lot of saving because I had to pay for the legal bills. And then also just my religious, because I was a, I'm still a Christian and I used to go to church a lot of that time. So really just going in and, you know, connecting to spirit, connecting to source and praying and just believing that there's a lot, you know, there's a lot at the end of the tunnel, everything that happens, you know, for me, not against me, all these sort of things that I kept speaking into myself, affirming mm. myself really to sort of say, you know, things are going to work out for you. Things are going to work out for you. Like I just had to do that for a whole period of time until I was cleared essentially. So it was a long, long process to get there and when you were cleared it wouldn't have been over right like when you were cleared there would still it would still feel like it was around you but it sounds like it's in your rear vision mirror and it's a long way away now does it feel like that yeah 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 definitely so when I was cleared I mean look it was a big relief because obviously now there's nothing you know there's nothing with restraining me and you know there's no bail conditions and there's this all like I don't have to talk about this and do they say to you sorry for the mix-up <laughs> like sorry sorry for the six months of your life that we've just told you you did something that you didn't do no there was none of that and when I look back I was probably like oh maybe I should have done something you know <laughs> but I was just happy to be free I was just happy to be to have this over I was just happy for this to to be finished it was a traumatic experience and I was just like let me get to this in the rear view mirror yeah and you know I think one day I'll probably write a book about it yeah <laughs> help some people who are going through a similar scenario who may be you know wondering how do I get back from a trial to a triumph yeah, and I was thinking it doesn't have to be the struggle of going to jail. Like I think I think the message is when you're in it, sometimes that you don't even know what it's going to look like. Like you you don't know what the road is in front of you. You don't even know what material it's made out of, right? Like you don't know where it ends, how it looks, what it's going to be, but that hope that that it can look different and that something so huge, Brenda, in your world, something so beyond what most of us can imagine can feel like it's in your revision mirror and you can barely touch it or see it anymore. It's pretty incredible. Like life does continue to grow and you can. I think you said it earlier on. It's like just what you've been through doesn't define where you're going next. A hundred percent. And that's what that's a real message that I that I want to share. I think if you could summarize a whole lot of this stuff is the past doesn't determine your future. And a lot of people I've seen can make one of these events, you know, mean the world to them like and it could be a breakup it could be you know a, a partner cheating it could be it could be something that feels like you know massive to that person at that time and they make it mean something about their self-worth and make it mean something about who they are and I just want people to know that there is a way to get back to being you there's a way to rebuild yourself your confidence to take the lessons out of these challenges and to move forward more boldly more strongly and yeah as a better person and what would be the first step I mean we have covered a little bit of this but just just for someone listening like if they're like oh god that's me but yes I'm like you know really inspired to do that what do I do (laughs) like what do I do now (laughs) yeah I think the first step is just acknowledging where you're at mm. and probably having a bit of a dream, like where would I love to be? Like where did I used to want to be before all mm. this came crashing down? Like what did I used to dream for myself? What did I used to vision? Because the reason I always believe that the dreams and the visions that we have for ourselves are there because they're possible. 
and we're able to create anything that we desire in our lives. And so remember that dream that you had, remember that vision that you had for yourself and start taking small, little, little steps, like even just a memory is enough to make you remember that that possibility is still available to you now. Ask for support, ask for help. You don't need to do this all by yourself. That's another thing that I really learned. Like my friend group, my family, they were all critical to me getting through this scenario. Are there things in particular they were able to help with when you think back to it? Like were there moments or things that they did or things that they didn't do that were so just like – you're my people. <laughs> yeah. So definitely, obviously, finances, like helping to, to yes. <laughs> pull together the finances. So family was mainly involved in that. A lot of my siblings' parents pulled hands together to help me pay through that. Friends, support, like just being able to, to, to chat and to be willing to be references when it got to that stage where I was able to discuss the situations with them. They, were, they didn't judge me. They didn't look at me differently. They were there to support me. They're like, they were just shocked like you were, I suppose. They were just like, what the heck? Like, how did you mm. go through that? Like, they wanted to see how they could help. And that's the thing I think with support. Like, you always feel that people wouldn't understand or people won't help, but people just want to help. Like, mm. you see how we respond when someone comes to us with the problem. Like, we just want to help. And that's the real sentiment that I feel people need to know. Like, people just want to help you. They're not, they're not going to kick you down while you're down, right? Even if they don't understand what you're going through, people don't have to understand or have walked the mile to want to help. Exactly. Yeah. And sometimes showing people how to help you, like maybe just sort of say, hey, look, right now I'd really prefer if you, you, the, the best way to help me is to just spend some time or to come over and let's watch a movie every weekend mm. or the best way you can help me is to provide some meals or something because I really can't cook anything healthy for myself. I'm finding myself doing this or going to spiraling in this way. The best way you can help me is a call once a month just to, you know, just quick FaceTime or something just to make me know that you're still around, right? Because sometimes people don't know how to help. And it's up to us to to show them or to give them a bit of guidance around that. That's something that we've talked about on this podcast a couple of times and I really encourage that as well. I think, you know, literally a checklist, like here is 10 ways people can help me because like for you, Brenda, what was helpful in that moment would be different to the person next to you or different to if I went through it. So, you know, spending that time and writing out that check sheet, it's like here's 100 things, these 10 things would be helpful for me and giving it to someone and they can allocate it out to the people that want to help. Exactly. And this can be simply from your reflections, right? Like maybe you don't know that list of 10 things right now, right? Just look at the last week or so. What's, what has been so helpful for you? What, what have you liked? and What have you hated? Like what has been so frustrating for you? Like when someone asks you questions or someone asks you to, you know, how are you feeling? Like maybe you don't like that. Like maybe a better question is, you know, how can I help you? Or what can I do to, you know, what, what do you need right now? Like so just thinking about what works for me now. And what's worked best for me in the last week or the last two weeks and just making a list out of that. Mm. And when you think back to this, I know we've kind of taken you back, <laughs> back 10 years. <laughs> How has it changed you? I think I'm much more resilient. I'm much more, I don't think understanding would be one, but I, I understand <laughs> A lot of the prisoners, like when I look back at some of the stories that people had in there, like I, mm. I just understand the journeys that people can take and the reasons why people do some of the things they do. Mm. So maybe that's more empathetic in a way. But it's also made me want to be more impactful. Like I feel like if that was the end of my story in a way, like it's almost made me want to 
rewrite, not rewrite my legacy, but like it's an opportunity to cre- create my legacy as I go. Mm. It's like, now that this has happened, now what? You know, mm. so and I think that's what a lot of the opportunity that we all have, the challenges that change us, <laughs> is to look and see how can this provide a, bre- a bigger impact now in my life and in the life of the people I love yeah. and I can support. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And I don't have the words, but I want you to know that I just, I, I really don't have the words. I'm, what you have been through and how you talk about it and where you are now is truly remarkable. And I, I know you might have been told that, but I don't think you can be told that enough because it could have looked very different for you. You know, I've spent a lot of time in this industry and it can look very, very different. Once you're down at one road, it's like it just keeps leading down these certain roads. And I just, to be sitting here hearing your story and hearing what you've done with that adversity that you were faced and challenged and how you digested it and how you move forwards and how you're standing here talking about it now, because again, it would be a lot easier not to have those conversations. You know, I just want to say to you that I just think you are truly incredible. Like really from my heart, I wish I could cut you I just really so yeah thank you for telling your story because it's so powerful I don't know if you'll ever know how powerful it is that means the world to me to hear that and I hope it does change someone's world who is Mm. experiencing something and feels like the world is ending I hope that this will just provide some hope for them that there's still a way to achieve their dreams and their goals yeah and find themselves again you know that's what I heard like it's almost like you went off to the left and then you came back on the track and it just got better and that's what it sounds like when I'm listening to you which I know it didn't look that easy but it sounds like that you know you you veered off here that was a really shit experience and then you come back on and now you're like bigger and brighter and and loving world the world even more definitely yeah, definitely. And I think in a post-COVID world, like there's so many things that were thrown at us and mm. I was able to be there for a lot of my friends who were experiencing challenges in different ways through that COVID and pandemic season. So I'm happy to be that light provider, that lightsaber. <laughs> and Brenda, before we finish up today, one of the things that's sitting there for me is around how you moved through having that experience and I can imagine that there would have been a lot of shame there attached to that experience and you talked about not really telling people about it but here you are on the podcast having the conversation with me now on an international audience that's a big shift so how and what occurred and what supported you to go from I'm keeping this conversation and this story close where no one knows about it to I'm actually going to share it and and not let it suffocate me anymore I don't know if that's how you felt but like I'd imagine it would have been like that yeah definitely that's a really great question and I suppose it's probably one worthwhile letting people that are listening to this know that it was a decade ago and probably for like a good six seven years like I kept it you know under wraps and once it was over it was over and it was sort of done and I kind of just pushed it into a little you know cupboard and left it there not to fester but you know it was just something that had happened in the past And it was only really during COVID when I started going into this whole, you know, there was all these webinars, Dean Dean Graciosi, Tony Robbins have done lots of these personal development things. And they were talking about how experiences can either shape you or, or, you know, keep you shamed, really, like you just mentioned. And one thing that I wanted to really do was to 
to pull the lessons out of this experience and to help someone with it. And it was only really about probably 2020 when I started sharing this message and really putting it on an international scale, you know, on a podcast that's going to be, you know, sent through to thousands. It was, I was able to work through the elements. I was able to really go through the healing, I guess, or the awareness around what what did I go through? What did, what did I experience? How did I feel about that? Why did I feel that way? What was I embarrassed about? What was I shameful about? And really rewrite the story in, in a way that I could actually live with it. Like, actually, what did I learn? Like, this was, this happened, but I learned that this. This happened, but I learned that that. And that's enabled me to process the story. And one thing that I really feel that empowers me and people when they share these stories, it's that the story can be now told in a way that is shaped by like my, what's the word I want to use? Shaped by my view of the story. So people can either weaponize your story or the the story can be your weapon in a way. So Mm. it's like, well, you're not going to weaponize the story because I've already gone on multiple podcasts and talked about it, right? And it's like someone can either come in and want to use it against me or I can actually say, actually, no, I'm, I'm owning that I was in a position where I was, you know, stopped by police officers. I was, I'm only that in a position where I was in a federal prison for six weeks. I'm only in a position that I had to clear my name for this whole stuff. So it's really about being able to process the event, work through all of that, and then be in a position where, you know, you use it as a stepping stone rather than something that you want to keep hidden in a cupboard. And has that helped with that shame piece that was around it? Definitely. Yeah, because secrecy builds shame. And I just want to pause there for a moment. And because, you know, when I ask that question, we hear your story and we hear courage and we hear determination and we hear an incredible mindset and, you know, taking step by step by step. And and I don't want to speak for the whole audience, but for me, certainly at no point did I think, you know, who is she or why is she doing this? Or like there was never any negative kind of thoughts. Like it's all just like, oh, my God, how did you do that? And, wow, how amazing is it how you've come through? But then we we hear your side of the story now as we're just talking. You're like there was, there was this shame and I kept it in a closet and it was eating like it does. It kind of like eats away at you when you have that and you're not speaking it out to the world. That's exactly right. And I think that's why – it helps to like look at some of these things in the in the face, really. And do that reflection piece that you're talking about. Yeah, you're right. Do that reflection because I guess looking at where I was the day I went into jail and when I was finding myself in there, I spoke about it a little bit earlier in the podcast that I had to see where I was at and look at it in the face. But looking at it after the fact is almost looking at the full journey too. It's like, well, I've now been through a whole lot of different traumatic experiences post the event too. Like, and it's like, okay, what did I make that mean about myself? What did I, what do I make that mean about my my, my self worth and how I respond to relationships and how I respond to love? Like, how do I, what did I make that mean about me being very guarded? Because the thing was, I, I didn't want to go into relationships or serious relationships for a long time after that, right? I was very jaded and I was very flippant about men in general, and I had to go through a a bit of a growth curve through that. So I'm certainly aware that it wasn't a, you know, <laughs> from zero to hero yeah. journey. It was, there was so much in between um, that I had to learn through and grow through. And was it really bumpy when you started telling your story? Yeah. So yeah. when I started telling the story, like I was crying through it all and, you know, it probably gave me moments of really looking at which elements was I still tearing up about, which elements was my body still holding on to trauma flow and, and asking myself why. And as I started to talk through it more and looking at things more and again, being more aware of the elements that were causing me a lot of angst and causing me to tear up. And that's the thing, right? Like you don't have to share stories like this on a 
public um, platform until you've gotten to a place where you're comfortable with it as well. Like so, and people should process their stories and be in a position to tell them, I suppose, like I'm telling them now, so that it is this they're able to work through that message. Working through your story can happen in a public place. It can happen in a therapy room. It can happen with your best friend. It can happen on a walk in nature. Like, you know, how you do this, you get to choose. Like we're not saying to do it the same way that we've just done it now, but I do know that some people start telling their stories and then close back up again. You know, it's like they, they go out there and then it's like, Oh, I'm not ready. And that's okay too. But I guess that's another part of this story is that what I can hear for you is that you just kept going. And, and as, as you told it more and more, you started to integrate it more and more and make sense of it more and reflect more. And, and now that's, you know, the story that we're hearing today. Definitely. Yeah. You're right. <laughs> and Brenda, I'd love to find out what's next for you. What's on the horizon? Yes, so I'm going to be continuing to grow my career in the corporate world. So I'm looking to expand my reach and continue to inspire more girls to get into engineering and STEM. But certainly in my empowerment coaching, I'm also looking to continue to empower those women who want to get more pay rises, who want to see how to package their skills up, who want to get a more fulfilling work-life balance, particularly for new mums and parents who are going through that transition. So that'll be my, 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 my door opening, I suppose, Ellie, for any of your listeners who are keen to, to level up their, their lives and their careers in that way. If anything I've said resonates with them, they can definitely feel free to reach out on Instagram or LinkedIn or any of the socials that we've provided in the show notes. Yeah, fabulous. And just to clarify, they don't need to be engineers. That's for any woman that wants to level up, right? Yes, they don't need to be engineers. Obviously, I'm passionate about the engineers and the women in STEM, but this is relevant to anyone. I've had lawyers, doctors, and different people come through the programs and go through sessions and unlock their true potential. So, Thank you so much, Brenda. I absolutely, when I think back to why I got put in touch with you, I'm like, my world is better because I've had this conversation with you. And I really mean that, like, absolutely. And this is what I love so much about this podcast is the people that I meet along the way and the stories that I hear. So just so much love to you. And I cannot wait to watch the space over these next two, five, 10, 15 years in your career. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the time to be on your platform. And we have to finish up for the podcast. So the question that I love to ask at the end is who or what in your world truly makes you barely laugh? (laughs) What really makes me laugh? I love Trevor Noah. I'm not sure of the audience. Who's Trevor Noah? He's a South African comedian. And I think the reason why I love the stuff he talks about is because it's very relatable for me as an African child. And he's got this knack of bringing in the audience, regardless of if you're an African or not, like he makes it relevant for everyone. And I just love laughing. (laughs) So he is one of the guys who lets me do that. One of my favorite things about challenges that change us is that I get to open my world of the people that I know and the people that I'm connected up to you. And this is a really good example because Brenda is a phenomenal woman. And for some of you that want to work with her, don't sit on that, like jump on that because, you know, I really believe in personal development. If you haven't picked that up already and it's through understanding who we are, what makes us tick understanding what's happened and the story that we're telling ourselves, that is what can really move the dial for us, for our happiness, for bringing more joy into our life, for having fulfilling relationships, for having fulfilling careers. It's about 
who are we and what makes us tick. So getting a coach, getting a mentor, having someone in your corner that's cheering you on and holding a mirror up is one of the best ways to do that going forwards. I said to Brenda when we finished this episode, I was like, ah, so I had a hundred questions to ask you about jail. I said, you're the first person we've had on Challenges That Changes that's been to jail. But I did also didn't want to keep keep her sitting in that space because the magic in her story is how she moved through that space, how she got back on track, how she's gotten to where she is today. And particularly if you took nothing else away from this episode, how she told her story so it didn't have shackles on her anymore. So, you know, if you're out there and you've been through something horrendous, something awful, some sort of adversity, and you feel like you're in the thick of it now, have the hope that this will not stay or be like this forever. Have the hope that with time you'll be able to reflect and this will be your story that you tell to the world one day. This will be someone else's roadmap to recovery. So, you know, for anyone going through the thick of it right now, we love you. We are here with you. I am 100% behind you and grieve the way you need to grieve, process the way you need to process. And then when you're ready, when you feel like you have that tiny little bit of spark, find the light, spark it up, and start taking those action steps forwards. Cannot wait to see you guys all next week. Monday morning, you know, we release at 5 a.m. And make sure you jump in our Challenges That Change Us Facebook group because that's where all our information goes up. That's where we put everything about who our guests are. We put little tips and hacks, you know, anything from Brenda that she sends through, I can pop up in there. So jump in, ask to be invited in, and I will let you in. Thank you everyone for listening and taking the time out of your day. I believe we can learn so much from connecting with other people's experiences and stories. I hope you've gained some strategies and insight from today's episode. You can gain more by joining our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us, or next week we will return with another episode.